0: Well, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Psalm 133 as we get started this morning. I'm sure you probably didn't read it, but back in the summer of 2011, the headlines in Mobile County, Alabama, that's why I said I'm sure you didn't read it, they included this. They said this, a minister of music at New Welcome, now keep that word welcome, just keep it right at the top of your mind there, at New Welcome Baptist Church tased the pastor who had just fired him Sunday. Sunday. He touched off a fight and various knife slashings, according to the sheriff's office. I'm reading this. The mayhem erupted when the Reverend Darrell Riley told Minister of Music Simon Moore that he was no longer needed and he gave him a final paycheck. Moore disagreed with the amount of the check and an argument broke out, in which Moore wielded a taser gun, according to the account that was given to the deputies. Several church members became involved, including Agolia Moore, the music minister's mother. All right, now let me just stop right there to tell you this. When you're a grown man and your mom gets involved in your church fight, you've got a problem. You have have gone to a new low when that takes place. She suffered, the account says, a stab wound at the hands of a deacon. A deacon. Now, if you've been around here any length of time, you know that the word deacon, the Greek word in the New Testament is diakonos. It means servant. okay, Or in this case, serpent, whichever the case may be. People hurt in the fight, the account said, were treated at the hospital and released to go home. Moore, with bandages on his forehead and right hand, acknowledged that he had a taser, but denied using it on the pastor. When asked why he was carrying a taser on Sunday, Moore said, I didn't trust the situation. Now let me just again say to you right now that if you came in here with a taser, you need to acknowledge that right now. All right, Any hands? All right. I figured we'd see some middle school boys that would for sure raise their hands as they had a taser. Riley, New Welcome's pastor, has a different recollection of Sunday's events. He said, the meeting with Moore was held in the conference room in the church's all-purpose building. Gives new meaning to all-purpose, doesn't it? Riley said that Moore became angry and he demanded another $600. He said, the deacons and myself said, we're not going to pay him because this Sunday was supposed to be his last. Once you're terminated, we're no longer on any obligation for any other funds to be paid to an employee, Riley said. At that point, he pointed the taser at me. Riley said he was tased twice on his left arm. He said that Moore also struck the deacon in the head with a money box. It just gets better. Hunt received two cuts, the deacon, that required 32 stitches. When asked whether it might have been more prudent to send Moore a termination letter with a check inside, Riley answered, I would have taken that approach, but the deacons wanted me to meet with him privately and in person, and I yielded to their suggestion. That's why the pastor should never listen to the deacons. Right there. Now, that's a true story. I didn't make that up. You can't make this stuff up, actually. You know, thankfully, that's not a common occurrence in most churches. But there are other problems that I really believe that are more common that are, quite frankly, just as damaging to the cause of Christ. Just as damaging to the cause of the gospel. Ask yourself this question, in fact. What causes the most harm in churches and yet is the most tolerated? I've thought a lot about this the last couple of weeks since I chose this text in our series, Summer in Psalms. What is the one thing that we tend to just ignore, we tend to kind of look the other way, and yet is just as damaging to some of the things that we bring to a head? Some of you have been in churches where church discipline is exercised according to Matthew chapter 18, and you've been to the point where somebody is unrepentant and their name is named. And and most of the times, those are, at least in my experience has been, those are for sexual sins. Maybe a man who's committed adultery, and we say, we do not want an adulterer in our midst. And so we discipline him, aren't we good Christians? And yet we're so willing to do things like that, and yet I would submit to you that there are sins that are tolerated in the church, in our church, potentially, and in evangelical churches all over this country that are actually more damaging, more damning to the gospel than those things that we're often so consumed with. And I really believe that that sin is the sin of disunity. Disunity. James chapter four, some of you know your Bibles well and you'll remember this text. James chapter four and verse one says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts amongst you? These people evidently were fighting. And so James says, where where do those things come from? Is not the source, your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Because you want life, I want life, so often of every day to be all about me, to be about my desires. I want to be the center of this world. I am the center of my universe. And when things don't go exactly my way, then it upsets me. The summary is this. The reason we fight and we quarrel is because we're all born to be most concerned with us. Can I get an amen? We're all born that way. Nobody had to teach you how to look out for you. I came naturally into this world looking out for me from as young as I can remember. When my mom put out brownies in front of us and said to my sisters and me, take one, I scoured over them quickly for what? What's the biggest brownie, right? Because she didn't cut all three exactly the same size. And my mom wasn't one of those moms like some of you are. You let one choose first and you know how that goes, yeah. It's natural. It's sinful, but it's natural for us to be consumed with our own little world rather than the well-being of those around us. And the cause, the gospel that many of us in this room say we care so much about. In our Summer in Psalms series, we've used several psalms that are are, are marked, in fact, in your Bible, Psalm 133 is as a song of ascent. That is Psalms, which were actually songs that the Jewish people would sing on their way up to Jerusalem, the city on a hill, on a high place, thus the Ascension, Song of Ascents. I asked David Loftus if he could put Psalm 133 to a tune and sing it. and He came this morning with a a Cary, North Carolina version and a reggae version of Psalm 133. Wouldn't you like to hear the reggae version of Psalm 133? If we have time, I'll have him sing it at the end. I don't know. I told him too many Rasta Jews, too many reggae Jews, but he's assured me that there are those out there. But this was a song of ascent. This was a a song which they actually sang, and as you'll see, it's a Psalm of David. Let's read Psalm 133. Let me read it for you out of the New American Standard. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. The message, by the way, paraphrase of verse one, goes like this. How wonderful, how beautiful when brothers and sisters get along, when they are as one. Now, if you're here this morning and you have kids, then let me say, you know why the Bible says it's good and pleasant when brothers and sisters get along, right? Some of you kind of are in the midst of the parenting game where your kids are really young and you are asking yourself the question, I know you do this because I've been here, you're asking yourself the question is, you go to bed at night and you're in the bedroom with your husband or with your wife and you're going, are they ever going to even like each other? Anybody there right now? Okay. Okay. A few of you, thank you for being honest. Are they ever even going to like one another? Let alone, I don't need the love just yet. Are they ever going to actually get along? And then we're getting to the point in, in our life, we've got a, uh, uh, an almost 21-year-old, and we've got an almost 18-year-old, and we've got a 12-year-old. And, and every once in a while, in fact, just last night, they didn't know I was listening, that I was watching. They didn't understand my text. But I'm going, thank you, Jesus. I really wanted to stand up and shout. I'm going, I think they might actually like each other. This is awesome. I never thought that this would happen, but I think that they're not going to kill each other. We'll never have sibling murder in our home. I think that they actually like each other. And so if you're a parent and you've been there, you're in the midst of that, you're on the back side of that, the front side of that, some of you got little babies and you're going, I can get along just fine. Just wait, all right? It's going to happen. But if you're anywhere along that journey, you know that when David the psalmist writes this and he says how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters get along, when they act as one, you know in your own home how good that is when your kids just get along, when they act like they love one another. Now, when I speak about unity this morning, let me make it plain about what I'm not talking about, all right? I'm not talking about union. Union is when you're bonded with someone with whom you may not have a common bond. I remember it this way, that when I was a freshman in Bible college and I, and I got to school that day and I met my roommates, all right, I have to say looking back on that time period, that was a union, all right? They threw those guys in that room with me and I looked around and went, I have nothing in common with these guys and the next few weeks proved that, all right? That's a union, when your college roommate was assigned to you, not chosen, that's a union. That's not unity. It's also not uniformity. This is when everyone looks alike and sounds alike and thinks alike. And Now, there are some churches, maybe you have been in some of these churches, where that's what they want to happen. In fact, if you saw somebody in the community and you saw a woman in the way she was dressed, you'd go, I know where you're going to church this morning. Because they all look alike. They all talk alike. They all go to the same places. They all frequent the same restaurants. They all believe exactly the same things. That's uniformity, and that's not what we're talking about. It's also not unanimity. Unanimity is when everyone agrees on everything. Now, quite frankly, I'm 47 years old. I've never been in a situation where there is total unanimity. That's because it does not exist, right? There's never a group of people that are put together where they agree on every single little thing. There's no place on earth that's exactly like that. I read this week about a lawyer and a psychologist who were making small talk at a party, and the lawyer said, You and your wife get along very well. Do you ever have differences of opinion? The psychologist said, Definitely. As a matter of fact, we have differences of opinion very often, but we get over them very quickly. The lawyer said, How do you do that? The psychologist said, Simple. I never tell her about them. That's the way that some of us live our lives, by the way, and we think it's unanimity. We think we've got real unity because if we don't talk about our differences, we must agree. Some of you, in fact, live or grew up in homes where if you don't talk about conflict, it doesn't exist, right? Some of you, in fact, as you go on your family vacations this summer with extended family, that's the way that you're going to live life, right? If we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. I'm not wired that way, as you might suggest. I always see the elephant in the room and I want to talk about the elephant that's in the room. But there are some people that that want unanimity. They want everybody to agree on everything. And even if we don't, let's at least act like we do. That doesn't happen in a good way most of the time. By unity, for the sake of our discussion this morning, I mean this. It is a oneness of heart. A similarity of purpose. An agreement on the fundamentals of Bible doctrine and truth. Let me say that again. I mean oneness of heart, a similarity of purpose, and an agreement on the fundamentals of Bible doctrine and truth. I really believe that Satan's greatest strategy to defeat the church is to divide and conquer. I firmly believe that that's true. I do not know too many churches that have divided because some heinous sin was committed by one or two people in the church. Those are oftentimes bumps in the road for a church. Those are difficult times. But typically, those things do not separate a body of people. Remember this morning that the devil is no match for a united church. It doesn't matter how big it is, how small it is. Regardless of the size, it can be defeated member by member if Satan's strategy is effective. And so often it is, and that is to divide and conquer. Satan's motive is division, and Satan's motive is deception. I say to people just about every week that Satan's greatest tool with us as followers of Jesus is to lie to us, to get us to believe things that aren't true about other people and about ourselves, about other people that they're so much worse than us and about us that we're actually better than most people that we interact and do life with. Satan loves to lie to us. And his mission ultimately is destruction. You recognize this morning that, that just the fact that this auditorium is near full does not make Satan happy. If our motives, if the reason why we exist here at Northwest Community Church is for the cause and the sake of the gospel, and the gospel alone, that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die on a cross, that, that we might have life that our sin debt might be marked paid in full, and that we might live life abundantly, as he said in John 10. If that's our motive, Satan does not want that to be successful. He wants to divide us. And if he divides us, then he will conquer us. Here's the warning and the challenge that I want to give to you this morning. When God begins to do something, with and through a group of people. For example, this morning, in our context, his church, Satan usually mounts a counter-assault. And most often, that assault involves people fighting and not getting along with one another. I'll tell you, people ask me, you know, do you ever lay up at night and, and are you worried or are you concerned about things? or You know, my greatest concern as a pastor. My greatest concern as a pastor, when I go to bed at night, Matt would say this, and I'm sure, and other guys on our staff, is not some of the things that you might think that it is. One of the greatest concerns of my heart on a regular basis is that somehow we wouldn't get along, that we would be divided, that we would fight over things that really, at the end of the day, don't matter, and that Satan would have a victory. I look back at at my past and the environment that I grew up in, and I've shared this in teaching you at times. I grew up in a very legalistic environment, a very legalistic environment which said, do these things and don't do these things. If you don't do these things and you do these things, you get whizzy buttons all over your shirt, and you're good. And you walk in the room, people are going to salute you because you got the whizzy button that said, hey, you did this. I didn't do these things, and I memorized 4,700 verses of Scripture this week. And that's the way I grew up. So if you did these things, but we all had to agree, don't do these things and do these things. And if you did things that you weren't supposed to do or didn't do things that you were supposed to do, you were bad. And all of a sudden, disunity, fighting comes in. That's my greatest concern for us at Northwest Community Church. Not that we would argue over fundamental doctrines, I would say that. It's not very difficult for for us to all agree that this is the very inspired word of God that he gave us. It's infallible. It is, as he wrote to Timothy, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. If I said how many of you agree to that, most of us would agree to that this morning. When we agree on the fundamentals of the faith... When we agree that God is three in one, when we agree that Jesus died, that he shed his blood, that he rose three days later from the grave, conquering sin and death, and he lives in heaven to intercede for us, that our sin debt can be paid, when we agree on the Bible and we agree on the gospel, at the end of the day, that's all we really need ultimately for unity. Now, when we're part of a local church, we agree to certain things theological, and we agree to certain things with regards to our philosophy and to our strategies and to our organization and all of those things. But at the end of the day, we agree that this is God's word, and we agree on the gospel, that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. Here's how the division begins, though. It begins when people are not humble. It begins when me becomes more important than the cause. And I think as we're just right on the threshold of some really exciting times here at Northwest, and I really believe that God wants to do some pretty incredible things. Whether some of you recognize it or not, I believe it's only going to be a few months when your faith is going to be stretched in a huge way, more than you ever thought it could have been stretched. I believe when we're right on the verge of those things, the greatest danger that we have this morning is that we become ununified, that there be disunity in our body. And that happens when we're not humble and when me becomes more important than the cause. And for God's church, that cause is the gospel. And so how does disunity manifest itself in the church? Let me give you just a few things. Okay, I wrote these down, and then I thought this week as I was studying, I probably should have opened up to a a bigger group of people and said, what leads to disunity? These are my things that I wrote down, all right? Number one would be an oversensitivity. An oversensitivity. Maybe you're one of those people. You're overly sensitive, If something doesn't happen the way in which you thought it should happen or the way in which you suggested it should happen, you immediately go to the nth degree, to the extreme, that somehow you're not valuable, you're not wanted, your opinion doesn't matter, you're sick and nobody calls you, nobody comes and brings a meal to you, therefore everybody hates me at church, nobody cares that I've been ill. That's an oversensitivity. Maybe an oversimplification of oversensitivity but that's oversensitivity. And number two is a lack of flexibility. A lack of flexibility. We're getting into the point right now where we're going to go to two services here in the fall. I know, I, I was born at night, as one person said, but not last night. I understand That there are some of you that would just prefer that we not go to two services, that we just pack every chair in here and we put people up and down the aisles. Not you, but other people up and down the aisles. And some of you sitting here along the edge and, you know, just right up here, which would be kind of cool, actually. And if any one of you wants to do that, that would be fine. I know some of you want to do that. I know some of you think that that's a good thing. There are others of us that really don't think our leadership that doesn't think that that's a good thing when disunity begins, it's a lack of flexibility. Many of you would say, well, obviously, we're not inflexible people. We come to church at a portable church, right? We come to church at a, at a, in a high school auditorium. We, we dropped our kids off in portable classroom settings back there. Hey, and that's something that you ought to be really excited about, that obviously church is more to you than just a building, and I'm glad for that. Let me encourage you that this is the way that disunity begins when we have a lack of flexibility. Number three is jealousy. Jealousy. And a lot of times, by the way, it begins right up here on this stage. It begins with whoever's teaching. It begins with who all these musicians are and who's singing. You sit there and you wonder, why is she singing? She can't sing nearly as well as I can sing. I should be able to sing. I'm going to write Bill King an email this week and I'm going to ask him, why is she singing? Do you think she can sing? Hello? Did you, have you heard me sing? It's jealousy. Which ultimately leads to this little word that we refer to five letters called pride, right? Pride. When we buy into the lies of Satan, which says, this is really all about us. It's really all about us. I read a quote this week by Alistair Begg, a pastor up in Ohio. He wrote this, You cannot impress people with yourself And impress them with Jesus simultaneously. Read that again to you because that was really good. Wish I would have said it. You cannot impress people with yourself and impress them with Jesus simultaneously. If you're impressed with yourself, they will not simultaneously be impressed with the God that you serve. But when you empty yourself, when it's not about you, when it's about Him, that's when people will be impressed with Him. And then lastly is selfishness. This is what's best for me. And because this is what's best for me, this is obviously what's best for everybody. You ever catch yourself in that position? I do. I do on a regular basis. I would love to be able to sit up here and tell you, this is one place that I've mastered life. I haven't. I really live a lot of my life, at least internally, that life is about me. If I like it this way, obviously everybody does, right? And if they don't, what's wrong with them, right? If they just understood that there's so much, it's such a better way to do it this way because that's what I like. That's how disunity begins to manifest itself in a local church. Now look at verse two. David gives us a vivid description of what it's like when unity is present amongst brothers and sisters. I guarantee you, you've never studied this before. The majority of you have never studied it. And you're gonna love this. He gives us a description of what it's like when there's when there's unity. Look at verse two. This is exactly like I would have said it if I would have been writing a psalm, by the way. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard. Not just any beard, even Aaron's beard coming down to the edge of his robe. Right? You're going, you got it, right? I mean, you're going, yeah, I get it. I can just picture it. No, you can't. You can't picture it at all. I couldn't either. I've read verse 1 so many times, and we love that. Oh, how beautiful. We write courses about it. We write songs about it. It's awesome. And not too many songs written on verse 2, right? This old oil on Aaron's beard, I'm going, that's gross, right? I mean, you see some of these guys. I'm the Duck Dynasty guys. Okay, I'm a Duck Dynasty fan, but I go, what's living in there, right? (laughs) There ain't anything about that picture that causes me to go, oh, yeah, I get it. That's what unity is like. That's what I want, There isn't anything about me that gets that. But David makes this comparison that's very interesting. He's comparing unity to the precious oil upon the head that's running down on Aaron's beard. And why is unity like oil? Well, remember that in the Bible, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, now follow me just real quickly. Aaron was the high priest of Israel. You know that. And the high priest was to be anointed with oil before he could ever enter into the Holy of Holies. And so God, get this, he gave them a special recipe for that oil. Really cool. Not just any oil. It's not like you go and get Penn's oil and you say, it doesn't matter. Get Penn's oil or whatever's on sale. Just get it, bring it back, pour it over his head. He didn't say that. He said there's a very special recipe. It was to be made up of myrrh and of cinnamon and sweet calamus. And the mixture was, was to be blended then with olive oil and it was very specific on how those ingredients were to come together. The Lord even gave a specific measurement of each element that was to be used in making that oil. And then that oil would be poured over Aaron's head. Now, as you first read it, you think, okay, well, they just take a little bit of oil and just kind of pour it on there. And you go, where'd it go? Where'd it go? Get stuck in the beer down there. No, it wasn't like that. It was like, and this is the only way I can describe it, I don't mean to minimize this passage because it's really a great passage, but the only way that I could really relate to it as a, as a football guy, as a sports guy, it's kind of like the coach that wins the game, right? And after the game, some of you are shaking your head, you, you know what I'm talking about, the Gatorade comes over the top of the head and it goes all over him, okay? Now, some of you men, at least you get it, the women are still going, no, that's weird, why do you guys do that, all Right. But that's, that's what happens. And, and, and so this oil would literally be drenched. It would, it would cover his entire head. It would come down onto his chest and come down to the very bottom of his robes. He was literally drenched with this incredible smelling oil. And so when Aaron would go around and he would involve himself with people then, they could literally smell him. And it wasn't like, oh, here comes the priest. I mean, it was a, it was a good smell. It was pleasing. And so when he walked around, they would smell that sweet smell. And when we're unified by walking in the Spirit, by walking according to the Spirit, by exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, it's a sweet-smelling fragrance that has literally been poured all over us. And wherever we go, people go, what's that? That's good. In fact... How does it happen? Paul gave us a description of Jesus' example. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, you can turn, but I'll read it to you in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1-7. to You're familiar with this passage. We refer to it theologically as the kenosis passage. It's when God empties himself of the use of some of his attributes. Verse 1 says, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God. Do you get that? Basically, although he was God. He didn't have to do any of this because he's God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant, and he was made in the likeness of men. That's the way that God intends for it to work if we are going to live in unity. We have to empty ourselves of ourselves. And we have to be more concerned and consumed with other people than we are with ourselves. And let me just tell you, when we do that, when a group of people do that, whether that's in your family, at home this afternoon, or whether that's in a local church, when we do that, it is an incredible thing. We focus on the majors and not on the minors. We all believe in the same Bible. We believe in the same Lord. We believe in the same Spirit. We believe in the same baptism. Those are things that really matter. There are a lot of things that seemingly matter to some of us that at the end of the day really aren't that important. And if we're going to enjoy this kind of unity, we're going to have to forget those things. One Bible teacher said it this way, Conflict is usually a sign that the the focus has shifted to less important issues, things that the Bible calls disputable matters. I believe that statement. Conflict is usually a sign that the focus has shifted to less important issues, things that the Bible calls disputable matters. When we focus on personalities, when we focus on preferences, when we focus on interpretations, when we focus on styles or methods, division will always happen. I'm so thankful for so many of you that are contrary to what I talked about before that have a flexibility that's built into your spirit. I know, for example, there are some of you that are here this morning and and you walked in and you went, "I, I would prefer the music to be down just a little bit. That's my personal preference. We've noted that. There are others of you that walked in here and think, I really love this song. If they'd crank it up just a little bit more, man, I could could worship in the Spirit then. That was you. And yet you've said, you know what? Hey, they've listened to me. They know where that happy median is for the vast majority of us here at Northwest. Conflict usually happens when we begin to focus on those things which, which are less important. Dwight L. Moody said it this way, I've never known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. That's a true statement. But if we do concentrate on loving each other and fulfilling God's purposes, then harmony results. David gives another description in verse 3 of what it's like when this happens. And if you didn't describe it with the whole oil thing running down the beard of Aaron, you would describe it this way. Look at verse 3. It's like the dew of Hermon, Mount Hermon, coming down upon the mountains of Zion, For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Now, why did David use dew as an example of unity? I studied this this week. This is really an incredible thing. Maybe some of you know this, and I'm just catching up with you. In the Mediterranean climate, dew is absolutely vital to plant life. In fact, dew is like a refreshing lotion that God sends to lubricate the dry, parched land in Israel. Back in the days of David, and certainly when this psalm was written farming was done on a dry basis. As a matter of fact, it was called dry farming. There was no irrigation, obviously, and there was very little rain, and farmers were totally dependent upon the dew that came in the morning to actually water their crops. And so in the absence of rain with no irrigation, there was not a more beautiful sight to a Hebrew farmer than for that dew to descend in the morning. And to come down from the mountains and go all over the crops. The dew meant that there was going to be food on the table, that there were going to be clothes on the backs of his his kids. And when the dew came, there would be great rejoicing in that household. You remember where the dew comes from. Maybe you don't know where it comes from. (laughs) Maybe you flunked that part of school. But you remember that, that the dew seemingly just appears, right? You go out in the morning and it's there. It actually is in the air, but it distills when conditions are just right. And when it reaches what we call the dew point, the dew just distills and it comes silently, which I think is just an incredible analogy. It doesn't come with a big bang. It doesn't come with thunder. It doesn't come with flashing lightning like a rainstorm did like we've we've seen so many come already this summer. It just distills in the air and then it's there upon the ground. And and, and here's here's the really cool thing about this analogy. That's how unity actually comes into a church. We just do all the right things, and the environment is right. And because the environment is right, we look around and we just go, there's unity here. People love each other. People are getting along with one another. You can't work it up. You can't enforce it. You can't even be a cheerleader for it. It just comes. I can't get up here this morning and say, we've got to have unity. And you're looking at one another and go, I don't like her, I don't like her, I don't like the way she dresses, I don't like the way she sings, I don't like him, I don't like it. And I go, stop it. We've got to be unified. And you go out and go, okay, he said so, so let's be unified. It's like the dew. You can't explain how it gets there, but it gets there. And when it gets there, you know it's there and you know it's good. And I'm telling you, if you've been there, you know that's an awesome, awesome thing. In fact, just this week, I was copied on an email from one of the guys that played softball with us this year. It's the first time he ever played softball with us here at Northwest. He wrote this, gentlemen, I just wanted to take a few minutes and say a little something. I want to personally thank every single one of you for taking me on this team and letting me be a part of something special. Never met a more likable bunch of guys in my life. And it's been such an honor to play with and get to know so many of you. And I look forward to keep building friendships with each of you and every one of you guys. I truly enjoyed every moment on the field I shared with you and continue to enjoy the time I have at Northwest Community Church. I already look forward to the next season. Every one of you guys are special and unique in your own way, and I respect every one of you. And it's been an honor to get to know you. We had a great season, and it was great to finally have fun again playing on the ball field. God bless all of you gentlemen. <laughs> man, I read that, and I go, whoo That's it. That's the do. I don't know how it got there, but that's it. That's it. I don't know it, but, man, I'm enjoying it. I read it. I got goosebumps. I get goosebumps even as I read that to you because I'm going, that's why we play softball. I told Joel Tillotson, Coach Joel, excuse me, I told him that. Just this morning I said, man, dude, that's why we do it. That's why we do it. We don't do it to win championships, obviously. <laughs> Although, hey, I say that. I say that. We did win a few years ago. All right? I played on that team. Uh, I, I just <clears throat> but that's not why we do it. We do it so that guys can come to understand what Jesus said when he prayed in John 17. That the way that we love one another, the way that we get along with one another is the way that an unbelieving world will say, what's that? That's different than anything I've experienced in the workplace this week. One guy followed up with that email as they kept hitting reply all. I'll keep this short and sweet. In all my competitive years of playing ball, I can't remember when I've had more fun. It's been over 15 years since I last played, and I can't remember being around a greater bunch of guys. I'm already having withdrawals with no game Thursday, and I definitely can't wait for the next season to start. Let me tell you, people, I don't know exactly, just like I don't understand how do actually gets there, I understand the benefits of it all, but I do know that a church that is marked by those kinds of things, by that kind of unity, what David said is certainly true. That is good. That's pleasant. There's nothing sweeter than when dew arrives on that ground. And I will tell you, there is nothing sweeter in the life of a local church than when there is unity. When we put self to the side, and we as Philippians 2, as Jesus did, we empty ourselves of ourselves, and we look out for other people. Some of you, by the way, you've been involved in churches that have divided. And so you know the blessing when you come to a place where you just go, man, this is awesome. And I'll tell you, for me, I would love for, I I just want to capture, you know how you have those moments in your family? It's kind of like what I was talking about before where your kids are getting along. Maybe you've just been on vacation and there was like one day where you'll go, "Oh, oh, oh, if we can just right here, right here. I'm looking at Monica. Monica, is that, she's going, yes, I just, I remember that one day on vacation. They just got back from vacation. I'm sure it was every day, Zane. Every day is a privilege with you. And you just go, I just want to bottle this. I just want to keep this just like it is because the world is as it should be. And i, I got to tell you, I could be oblivious to what's going on and there could be all kinds of stuff happening just below the surface, but for the most part, to be a bunch of sinners that are trying to do life together, I would say right now, I just want to take this right now and I just want to put it in a jar. That's the way I feel, because it's so sweet. It's so awesome. I want to ask you, whose job is is it to protect the unity of the church? It's everybody's job, right? Not my job, not the elder's job. It's all of us together to protect unity. I'm reminded of that Under Armour tagline, we must protect this house. I thought that'd kind of be a good thing, only not to say it so mean like that, you know, just say, hey, let's protect the house or something like that. Because, you know, we wouldn't want it to be real harsh. But really, that's what we got to do. we got to say, we got to protect this place. Because the cause of the gospel is so worth it to protect unity. And when there's unity, it's good and pleasant. It's like the oil running down the beard of Aaron. Whew, that smells good. It's like the dew that comes down from the mountains and it settles on all our crops and we go out and... Wa- They're green. They're growing. It's that awesome. Paul, when he was speaking to the entire church at Ephesus, wrote in Ephesians 4.3 that we should be endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Years ago, I read about Canadian geese. Must have been a very, kind of a lull in the week that week. But I was reading about the Canadian geese And I found an account of it just this week, and I wanted to read this to you. A naturalist began studying why geese who fly south or fly north always fly in a V formation. In fact, you may have seen at times a flock of geese, and you looked overhead and you went, wow, they're in a V. Why are they in a V? This naturalist discovered why they fly that way. Research has revealed that as each bird flaps its wings, it creates uplift for the bird immediately behind him. In fact, flying in a V formation, the whole flock, this guy says, adds at least 71% greater flying range than if each bird flew on its own. That really teaches us something, doesn't it? When people have a common goal of just following God's will and obeying God's word, and they live in total surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, they can go further together. They can go farther They can go more quickly and they have more success than if they were just simply traveling the road alone. They discovered something else. When a goose falls out of formation, it suddenly feels the drag and resistance of trying to go at it alone. And it quickly gets back into formation to take advantage of the lifting power of the bird immediately in front of it. Now, if we just have as much sense as these geese did, think about it, if we were just as smart as a Canadian goose... We would stay in formation. I have people say to me all the time, Well, I don't need to go to church. I watch Joel Osteen on TV at home. It's another sermon, but I'll just tell you this. (laughs) I will just tell you this. I don't care who you're watching on TV at home, I don't care what podcast you're listening to, there is nothing on this earth that can even begin to compare to what we experience as brothers and sisters in Christ when you are part of the unity of a local church that's focused on the gospel. There's nothing else like it. And so when you get out of formation, you're on your own. One pastor said, what's true for geese is also true for the church. What's true for the church is true for a family. He said, I'm limited in what I can do alone for God, but we're unlimited by what we can do together. United we stand, divided we fail. Psalm 133.1, I want you to remember the verse. As we go into a season of our church life that Satan will mount attacks, I already sense it at certain moments. There, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming! And we go, we saw that incoming counterattack. But I already sense it. I want you to remember this particular psalm as we enter into those days where david said how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together as one i want to do that i'm telling you there's not a more stubborn person probably in this auditorium than i am i have a perfect <laughs> i have a perfect way of how i think things should be And I'm convinced it's a vision that's been given to me by God. And yet for me, I need to sit back and say it's not about you. It is about the gospel. That's what it's about. That's why we do what we do. That's why this church exists. And if we can all have that attitude and be committed to living together in unity, agreeing on those things which are the majors, and giving grace and flexibility to one another, where we disagree, we have a difference of opinion, we can still live together in unity. And I believe, because of that, really accomplish some incredible things for the cause of Christ in this community, and not just in this community, but I really believe around the globe. Will you do that with me? Will you, let's just capture this in this jar and say this is who we're going to be. We're not going to let Satan mount attacks which are going to destroy the mission of, the cause of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Let's pray. Father, you know my heart this morning. You know that this is the best part of my week. And not because I get to sit up here and teach, preach. I love to do that. But it's because I get to do life with these people that I love so deeply. I'm so thankful for each person that you've brought here to Northwest. I'm thankful for the person that comes in and they know they're messed up and they need help. They've made poor choices and they want to get back on the right track. They want Jesus to do something in their life. God, thanks for that person. Thanks for the person that came in here and they don't think they're messed up and yet every Sunday they're realizing they're a little bit more messed up than they thought they were. Thanks for bringing them here. God, I thank you for the people that I know are sitting here right now that have never placed their trust in Christ alone as their Savior. God, thank, I'm thankful that Northwest is a place where they feel comfortable coming in here and exploring the claims of Christ on their life. And I pray that soon they'll, they'll, they'll come to know their need of a Savior and they'll place their trust in you alone. God, thanks for the privilege of, of being on mission with these people. I'm thankful for what I know you want to do in this community and around the globe through Northwest Community Church. And I pray that you will make us one. I pray that we will operate that way. And that it will be said of us from the mouth of God how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters at Northwest Community Church walk together in unity. God, may we be marked by that principle of Psalm 133, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.